Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word this morning? We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you know that many moons ago, I had originally thought of becoming an architect. Uh, I loved drafting in high school. It was my favorite class. I still have my original drafting tools, which I'm sure, sure someday will be worth thousands of dollars. I was halfway decent at it uh, in the prestigious Onekama High School as a sophomore I won the highly coveted Industrial Arts Award, much to the chagrin of the juniors and seniors who thought they should have won. And then I I came to faith in Christ in the spring of my senior year in high school, went off to college, and a couple of years into college, the Lord redirected my vocational path, if you will. And today I still thoroughly enjoy architectural ideating, you know, thinking about different plans and what could work and what wouldn't work. And getting out graph paper and drawing sketches and all that kind of stuff. And I also find myself marveling and wondering at some of the great architectural feats throughout history. I pulled up just a a few examples that I'll just touch on briefly as we get started this morning. The Great Pyramid or the Pyramid of Khufu, it was constructed 4,500 years ago. It took, uh, stay back on the other one, I'm going to talk for more than, yeah, a little bit more. Um, 2540 B.C., it was a tomb for the pharaoh, Khufu, and his wife. It took over 20 years to build. It was quarried and shaped with blocks of stone, 2.3 million blocks of stone, each one weighing on average two and a half tons. They estimate today that it would have taken 12 blocks each hour being moved into place, day and night for 20 years to complete the Great Pyramid. 480 feet tall in its origin. Now it's 450 plus feet tall because of erosion. Used to have smooth surface. Now all of the outer layer has been eroded away. Um, Just an amazing feat. And for 3,800 years, it stood as the tallest man-made structure in the world. Next, the Parthenon. Greek temple dedicated to the goddess Athena. 436 B.C., 
took nine years from start to finish, eight columns on each end, 17 columns down the sides. Most important surviving building of classical Greece. Next, the Colosseum. This one amazes me probably the most. Never seen it, would love to someday. It was begun in 72 AD, completed in 80 AD in Rome, of course. One of the world's finest pieces of Roman architecture that still exists. It remains the largest amphitheater in the world. It housed between 65 and 80,000 spectators at a time. It was used for gladiator contests, for mock sea battles called naumachia. They would fill the bottom up with five feet of water and actually have sea battles in the inside of the Colosseum. Animal hunts were one of the big things of the day back then. They would bring in lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, and elephants and other creatures and actually slaughter them and kill them to the entertainment. That was their version of going to the Galaxy Theater. Um, you'd go to the Colosseum for a Friday night thrill. Um, at, the, at the inauguration of the Colosseum, 9,000 animals, historians tell us, were killed. Reenactments of famous battles took place there. Next, the Taj Mahal, 17th century. In Agra, India, it took 20 years to build the Taj Mahal. Again, it was built by the Mughal emperor to house the tomb of his favorite wife. His not-so-favorite wives didn't get such a nice structure to be entombed in. Built at an estimated cost of 53 billion rupees, which in today's dollars, American, 800 million. Now, I failed to mention when I was talking about my high school drafting class that in my senior year, what was supposed to have been my senior project got stolen from my locker. And we just happened to have a foreign exchange student from Dubai at our school that year whom I suspected stole it. And then, lo and behold, in 2010, my idea shows up for all the world to see. <laughs> you can imagine how upset I was. Uh, the Burj Khalifa, built in 2010 in Dubai, over a half mile high, the world's tallest building today, but in another three to four years, it will be it will be dwarfed by a new tower, the Jeddah Tower, going up in Saudi Arabia. Amazing structures. Then, of course, you have some phenomenal churches, and I, I just spent time this week just looking at amazing churches throughout history. Uh, the Las Lajas Sanctuary in Colombia, phenomenal. How in the world did they build that thing? Uh, if I can pronounce this correctly, Hallgrimskirkja, the largest church in Iceland. And it just kind of looks like it belongs in Iceland, doesn't it? The Milan Cathedral in Italy. The Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, Turkey. I had the privilege of visiting there several years ago. The Church of the Savior, St. Petersburg, Russia. Beautiful. The Crystal Cathedral in California. Have some of you been there, seen that? We were there many, many years ago. Built by Robert Schuller. And then, of course, there's a striking edifice here in St. Louis. Now, you say, Gary, where are you going with all this? Well, all of that leads up to what we're going to talk about and think about this morning. Peter gives us a word picture, a metaphor of what it is that the God of the heavens has set out to accomplish. And interestingly, he uses architectural slash building metaphor to tell us what God's doing. God's building something. 
He's building this great celestial structure. But unlike any structures built with human hands, this structure is not going to be built with stone or brick or wood or glass or steel. It's being built with people, whom Peter refers to as living stones. Hundreds of millions, billions of living stones are going to go into this edifice. Now, friends, this is so important because we always need to keep before us the big picture of what God is doing. Because it is natural within us to tend to shrink all of life down to what is happening only in our little, tiny, puny generation and place on this planet. The micro dot of a dot of a dot in history. That's where we put most of our attention and focus and thoughts. A pixel of a pixel of a pixel is what we tend to think about. We tend to make it all about us, right? We tend to make it about me. And it's not. It's not about me. It's not about us, people. It's about God. It's about what God is doing. It's about what God has done and what God is doing and that you and I, by his grace, get to be a part of this great building project that God has set out to accomplish. God is building his church, his people, a people for his own possession. Now, the first thing to point out from what Peter tells us here is the obvious. God is both architect and builder. God's the architect. God's the builder. This whole thing is God's idea. It's his vision. It's his plan. It's his design. Because let's be honest, man would have never come up with such a plan as this. We would have never. You take the the most brilliant people in the history of the world, and sit them down and say, come up with the greatest building project of all time. They would have never arrived at this. God has always been into building things. His plans and ideas are always spectacular in some fashion. From the tiniest atom, absolutely amazing. From the DNA molecule, phenomenal that he would build such a thing, design it. And then, of course, we think maybe bigger. We think of what God has made. Our minds go immediately back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Billions of galaxies in each galaxy having billions of stars. And then our little tiny blue planet Earth, again, he designed it and he built it. Land and water and oceans and seas and rivers and streams and mountains and deserts and hills and valleys. This earth was built exactly the way God wanted. And then you go to the Old Testament, the building of the ark. That wasn't Noah's plan. It wasn't Noah's vision. It wasn't Noah's idea. It was all God. God designed it. And then you go to the temple. King David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. And God said, no, it's going to be given to your son Solomon. So I'm going to put my idea into your mind, and you write it down, and then you pass it on to your son Solomon. He'll build it. We read in 1 Chronicles 28, Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then David gave Solomon, his son, the plan, the vestibule, the houses, treasuries, upper rooms, inner chambers, the room for the mercy seat. All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, All the work to be done according to the plan. And then here in 1 Peter, Peter tells us God is building a spiritual house. 
a house greater than anything that has ever been made before. Frankly, friends, God is building something greater than all of the galaxies put together. The second thing Peter tells us is that Christ Jesus is the cornerstone of this spiritual house, and he's the one who holds the entire thing together. Verse 6, a living stone, come to him a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That was verse 4, and then verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I, God, am laying in Zion, in Jerusalem, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. So let's think about some of those descriptors. Christ is referred to as a living stone. That's a stone that has life. Chosen, God's chosen stone. Precious, that means priceless. Of inestimable value, this stone. And then cornerstone. Now, we don't use cornerstones the way they did in ancient times. Today, cornerstones are generally more of a monument stone put on the side of a structure. But in ancient times, the cornerstone, also known as the foundation stone or the setting stone, was the very first stone set in laying the foundation. It was placed at the chosen corner. It was usually one of the largest, most solid, well-prepared stones, carefully shaped, meticulously, strategically placed exactly where it was to go. And its importance was in the fact that all of the other stones would be set in reference to the cornerstone. Now in the Old Testament, God revealed to the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, Christ was tested, a precious cornerstone, Christ is precious, of a sure foundation, Christ is our sure foundation. And then the psalmist writes similarly to Isaiah, this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the builders look at this stone and say, we don't want anything to do with that stone. We'll pick a stone of our own choosing. The stone that the builders rejected, it's actually become the cornerstone. The psalmist says, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now understand that Israel had interpreted all of those things as pertaining to itself. They believed that they were God's precious cornerstone. Their kingdom, their city, Jerusalem, their temple, that, that she was the ultimate player in God's great plan of work in the world. But then this itinerant preacher comes along and takes all of the imagery pertaining to the temple and to the stones and applies them to himself. He says, all of those things in the Old Covenant were simply shadows of the real thing. And now the real thing is here. I'm the stone. I'm the living stone. I am the cornerstone. God laid me in Zion, and I am chosen and precious. In Luke 20, Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews who were challenging his authority, Jesus turned to them, looked directly at them, and said, What then is this that is written? 
the stone that the builders rejected, you're rejecting me, has become the cornerstone. And then Jesus went on to say, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so friends, think about it for a minute. God has chosen this stone, the living stone, infinitely precious in God's eyes. God sets him on Zion. I think of Psalm 2. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Where he lays down his life, God raises him from the dead and bestows on him the name that is above every name. And so Jesus here is saying to the Jews in Luke 20, I'm the cornerstone. The Father's great building project will be built on me and on me alone. There is no other cornerstone. There's one. The third thing that Peter tells us, God's building materials are people. Peter refers to them as living stones. You also, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Stones that have life in them. Stones that once were dead or lifeless, and now they're, they have life. You remember what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. It says the same thing in Colossians. You who were dead, God made alive. You were dead stones. You were lifeless stones. Now you are living stones. Jesus said, I am the life. John says in John 1.4, in him was life. And so the living cornerstone gives his life to stones, lifeless stones, people who are spiritually dead, turns them into living stones. And so God is going to build this celestial structure using people like all of us in this room. Young people, old people, tall people, short people, skinny people, chubby people, people with great intellect and skills, people with profound disabilities people with impressive resumes and people with no resume, people who make it to 100 and people who don't make it out of the womb, people from every nation, tribe, every ethnicity, language, dialect, skin color, people, living stones, a mosaic of stones. But friends, the two things that they all have in common, they come to Jesus and they believe in him. They come to Jesus, and they believe in him. As you come to him, verse 4. And so he's saying, you don't come to the city of Jerusalem. You don't come to the temple. You don't come to Judaism. You don't come to some great edifice. You come to a person the crucified and risen, ever-living, ever-reigning Christ. You come to Jesus. And you don't come casually. You don't come indifferently. You don't come merely from a sense of obligation. You come because you desire him. You want him. 
It's the idea of drawing near to him. As you come to him, as you draw near to him, you, you draw near to him because you want to stay close to him. You don't, want, you don't want to get separated from him in the crowd. You don't want to get lost in the mall without him. You depend upon him. He's your life. He's your safety. He's your defender. He's your protection. You don't want to leave him. You trust him. You trust him implicitly. You love him. Peter says, though you have not seen him, yet you love him. Though you do not see him now with your eyes, you believe in him. And you've come in response to his call. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. You're not going to find rest in religion. You're not going to find rest in, in your own performance. That will exhaust you. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Friends, you've got to come to Christ. It is very simple. You come to the person of Jesus. You draw near to him and he will draw near to you. And you say, you say oh, I'm hesitant to do that. Well, there have been lots of people who have been hesitant to do that. I love the account of Philip and Nathaniel who are apparently really good friends. And Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus went to Galilee. <clears throat> he found Philip. He called Philip to come follow him. And Philip responded. He came. He came to Christ. And then Philip said, I've got to find my best friend, Nathaniel. I've got to go find Nathaniel and tell him about this. See, he goes to Nathaniel and says, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. You can imagine his excitement. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. <clears throat> Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. Peter says, as you come to him. Friends, it's really just that simple initially. You just simply need to come. Come with your doubts. Come with your fears. Come with your hesitations. Come seeking. Come looking. Come with your intellect. Come with your mind. Come with your past. Come with your present. Come with your sins. As you come to him. The second thing that's true of all of these living stones, they believe in him. They come to him, but first they come to him, then they, then they believe in him. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, Peter says. The honor is for you who believe. Boy, that word whoever, that just flings the door wide open, doesn't it? Whoever. Whoever comes, whoever believes. And of course, Jesus was the first one to use the word whoever in this regard. You know the verses, John 3. Jesus said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a cross that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, whoever Jesus says it again in Matthew 16. Whoever would save his life will lose it. 
Whoever loses his life by coming to me and believing in me, whoever loses his life for my sake, he or she is going to find it. Friends, this is the good news. Come and believe. Whoever you are, say, I can't come. I've got too many sins. Whoever. You don't know my past. Whoever. I've been a Muslim all my life. I've been a fill-in-the-blank all my life. Whoever. I still have some doubts. Come with your doubts. Now, it's that whoever that was so alarming to many first century Jews that these living stones would be comprised of whoever. They had always thought that the stones, God's chosen materials for his project, would be Jews. I mean, to the Jewish mindset, the response would have been, we've never seen it done this way before. God's always used just Jewish stones. These Gentile stones, they aren't kosher. They're contaminated. They're impure. We're the ones who have the law. We have the prophets. We have circumcision. We have the Sabbath. We've got it all. We're the stones. But in Christ, this great division between Jew and Gentile, and frankly, friends, this great division between any other distinction that separates people from people has been abolished, ripped away. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, he's writing to Gentiles who've come to Christ. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here it is. This is Paul using the same imagery. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, right here. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom, in Christ... The whole structure being joined together grows over time. This isn't a 20-year building project. This isn't a 50-year. This is a several-century building project. This whole structure grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Wow. Friends, we should celebrate that. We really should. And frankly, this is really what the world needs to see. The world needs to be able to see this visibly in the visible church. Saints of all stripes and persuasions. Stones of all shades and sizes and colors. About 10 years ago, we started praying that God would make us, give us greater diversity in every, in every way. Make us more diverse, Lord. In, here, right, here where we're, right here where you've placed us, in fundamentally white West County, give us diversity of your, to your pleasure. And friends, he has, answered that, he has answered that request. And he continues to do so, and I praise him for it. And I would encourage you only all the more. Pray for more living stones with even more diversity for God's glory. Now, Peter also says, regrettably, tragically, there are also going to be those who choose not to come 
those who reject Christ. He writes, for those who do not believe. Say, okay, what's the deal for those who don't believe? He, he again quotes, quotes the Old Testament. The stone that the builders rejected. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word. They disobey in unbelief. They disobey in rejection. They don't come. They don't believe. They reject Christ. They reject the offer of salvation. They reject the free gift. And so Peter says to them, so tragically, the chosen and precious cornerstone becomes a stone on which they stumble. The chosen and precious cornerstone becomes a rock that they find offensive. And so they disobey God's word. They want nothing to do with God's word. And it is their own choice. A choice for which they will be held responsible. And so as a result, unbelievers received, received, Peter says, the rest of Scripture confirms, unbelievers received the just judgment for the rejection of the cornerstone, for the rejection of Christ a judgment for which they are appointed because of their unbelief, because they have not believed the gospel. John wrote in his gospel, chapter 1, to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, to all who come to him, to those who believe in his name, he gives, he, God, gives the right to become children of God. Which means the opposite of that is also true, tragically. To all who reject him, to those who do not believe, they are not given the right to become children of God. They are not living stones. They will not be used in God's great building project. Because of their rejection and unbelief, they will be condemned, the Bible says. As hard as it may be for us to comprehend and accept that, we need to. And it will motivate us all the more in our prayers and our reaching out with the love of Christ to others. Friends, understand, God does not destine people to unbelief. But he does assign judgment for rejecting his gracious offer. John 3, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Why? because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The fourth thing Peter tells us, this is going to be a temple occupied by God. Say, well, who's going to live in this spiritual house? God. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You've got to get this picture. This is where God chooses to dwell. Not in great cathedrals. You can go to... Dave and Nancy Holmes just got back from Spain and Portugal, and they probably visited a lot of cathedrals, I would imagine. You go to Europe, and boy, they're amazing. That's not where God dwells. Man's always wanted to build a house for God. We even talk about a church building being God's house. 
That is so contrary to what the Bible teaches. This isn't God's house. We are God's house. Even while the temple that Solomon built in the Old Testament, it was a place where God would reveal his glory for a season, for a temporary season. It was referred to as the house of God or the Lord's house, but it was simply an illustration, a living parable, if you will, of something much greater that God was going to do. Because first of all, God says of individual believers in this room that you are a temple. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? 1 Corinthians 6. Back in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, you have what appears to be a similar statement. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Only there in 1 Corinthians 13, he's talking about you collectively. Do you not know that you collectively and corporately are God's temple? And that God corporately and collectively lives in you? And so while God lives in individual believers, God collectively lives in his temple, his spiritual house. I went to a conference, Will, and I went to a conference this this past Tuesday over at Covenant, and the speaker addressed the problem of individualism in culture today, in the West in particular. And he addressed how individualism is doing such great harm to the church, tremendous harm to the church. God loves and cares about the individual and praise God that he does but he is not a fan of individualism. The, the, the idea, the belief that life is fundamentally about me. And so what do you, what do, you do with, what does individualism look like? Well, it looks like when you read the Bible, you read, read it fundamentally so that you get something for me. You come to church so you can get something for me. You go to life groups so that you can get something for me. You, you listen to the preacher preach, hoping that he will meet my needs, hoping that he will help me, hoping that he will share some great little story or illustration for me. You find a church and you say, well, what's in it for me? You choose to stay or leave the church depending upon whether or not it meets my needs, whether it pleases me. And the scripture says you've got to pull way back away from that because that, that is a, a, a great, it's doing great harm to the church in America today. Because with individualism goes consumerism. Consumerism always, is always about me. No, Christ is building his church. It's a collective people. It's a body with many parts. It's a family with many members. It's a spiritual house with many living stones. We need a much greater appreciation for the fact that God lives in his house. And lastly, Peter tells us the purpose, the purpose 
The eternal and joyful purpose is for it to be the worship of God. The purpose of this spiritual house is the worship of the one who dwells therein. He says in verse 5, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so here's where Peter merges two metaphors together. He takes two word pictures. We are a spiritual house, and we are a holy priesthood, and he marries them together because that's the only way he can get at the greatness of what this is that God is doing. We're a spiritual house and a holy priesthood at the very same time. Holy priesthood. Holy. What does holy mean? Set apart. Doesn't mean perfect. Don't ever equate the word holy with perfect. You can be a holy saint without being perfect. You're not going to see perfection this side of heaven. You've been set apart. Holy means set apart by God, set apart for God, set apart to belong to God, set apart for God's purposes, set apart for God's pleasure. Set apart for God's glory. Holy priesthood. The main thing that occurred in the temple with the priests in Jerusalem was that they offered sacrifices. Sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. That's what the priests did in the temple. And only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. There'd be this huge curtain here. And only the high priest could go behind the curtain once a year for the sins of all the people and atone for their sins. If anybody else took on any, any hint of the priest's job, there were severe consequences. You could die if you took on the job of the priest. But under the new covenant in Christ, all believers become priests. You are a holy priesthood. So not only are we living stones being built into this spiritual edifice in which God dwells, we are also priests. Every person who is in Christ is a priest. And what do priests do? They offer sacrifices. But not to atone for sins. That's already been done. Our great high priest That's why he sacrificed. He sacrificed to atone for sins. It never need be done ever, ever again. Praise God. You say, well, Pastor Gary, then what are our sacrifices? Allow scripture to interpret scripture. Your body is to be a sacrifice. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies... As a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, acceptable to God, through faith in Christ. That's where your acceptable to God part comes from. Your body becomes an acceptable sacrifice to God through faith in Christ. You've come to Jesus, you believe in him, you present your body as a living sacrifice. This is your worship, Paul says. What else? Your praise and thanksgiving are a sacrifice. Hebrews 13, through him then, through Christ, let us continually, let us collectively, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so your songs this morning, 
your prayers this week, your praises, your words of thanksgiving to God, that's, that's a sacrifice. When you open your mouth and confess Jesus, that's a, that's a sacrifice of praise. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that was a sacrifice of praise. Through him then let us all, here in this room who are in Jesus, continually, day by day by day, hour by hour, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. The fruit of lips that acknowledge him. You say, well, what else? Good works, acts of kindness, acts of love. Paul wrote in Philippians, I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so when you help somebody out, when you give, it becomes a sacrifice to the Lord. Hebrews 13, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There's your sacrifices. You, you, you present your body as a living sacrifice. You present the, the fruit of your lips. You sing, you praise, you pray, you thank. You speak words of truth. You have conversations with other people about Christ. You're not ashamed of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel as the power of God for salvation. You're not ashamed of Jesus. When you go to work, you're not ashamed of Jesus with your family and your friends. You find appropriate spirit-led ways to, to bring Jesus under your lips. And then your, your daily good works, acts of kindness and love, whoever they're shared with. You see, friends, these spiritual sacrifices are the life you live, the deeds you perform, the prayers you pray, the songs you sing, the praises your mouth speaks, the testimony you utter, the gifts that you give. But notice, they're only acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, meaning when they're done for his glory and not your glory. When they're done in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in your own strength. When they're done according to God's will and not according to your own agenda. You see, we all know, don't we? We can do lots of things in this life. We can do lots of things that may seem or appear spiritual. But here's the distinction. If they are fundamentally about you, your strength, your wisdom, your knowledge, your talent, your skill set, your money, your generosity, your goodness, your adulation, they're not acceptable to God. Because the Father wants more than anything else for His Son to receive the glory. And the Son then in turn turns and gives that glory back to the Father. Look at what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Maybe I didn't put, did I make a slide? Okay, then just listen. Listen carefully. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each one of you look not only to your own interests. May you look to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so you ask yourself, Lord, are my sacrifices being done for me or are they being done for you? Are my acts of love mostly about me or are they mostly to bring attention and glory to Jesus? Am I doing the things that I do in and through Christ or am I doing the things that I'm doing in my own strength and for my own adulation and praise? So there's the greatest building project of all time. God the builder, it's his vision, it's his plan. He started it, friends, and he will finish it. Christ, the chosen precious cornerstone, the greatest of all the stones, all the other stones get their life from this stone. All of the other stones find their identity and their place in reference to him. You and me, all of us in this room who are in Jesus, Throughout all generations, all believers, we are the living stones. We get our life from Christ. He is our life. He is our identity. We are being built together, not separately all over the place, but together, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit in which we spend our lives, as many days as God grants you, offering a multitude of sacrifices to God every single day, acceptable to God through our words and our songs and our prayers and our deeds as we make much of his son the chosen and precious cornerstone. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. I need, do need one more time to offer the call to any of you in this room this morning in the hearing of my voice who have never come to Christ. Friends, this can be your day. By grace through faith, I came to Christ when I was 18 years old. You need to come. He invites you. He calls you. Don't reject him. Please, please don't reject him. Come to Jesus. Come as you are. 
Don't come to prove yourself worthy. Come to show yourself unworthy. Christ calls you. I call you. Please come. Believe. Receive the gift. Simply say in your heart this morning, Lord Jesus, I come. You know me. You know my heart. You know my sins. You know my past and my present. You know my fears. You know everything about me. You've said to come, and so I come, Lord Jesus. I'm coming to you, trusting. I believe. Help my unbelief. those of you who have put your faith in Christ marvel again this week over his grace and calling you to himself taking that which was dead in transgressions and sins and making you alive a living stone Christ as your cornerstone. We love you, Lord. May we offer to you our sacrifices this week. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We give you the fruit of our lips, our words, our songs, our prayers, our thanksgivings. We give you the works that we would perform this week that you have prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May they be done for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. God's people agreed by saying